Take your copy of God's Word with me once more, opening it to the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 9 again. This morning we'll be uh, focusing uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 22. I told you it's going to take a few weeks to work through chapter 9, and today you'll probably uh, begin to see why a little bit more. Chapter 9 is just thick with uh, theology and implications of the things that the author of Hebrews has been saying about Jesus up to this point. Today we'll see Jesus, the greater sacrifice for our sins. Now, many of you know that when I was in college, I was an English major, Uh, And so I spent a lot of time reading great works of English literature throughout uh, the many centuries that the English language has existed. Uh, One of my favorite uh, but hardest classes was a Shakespeare class that I had to take. And, uh, and I was helped by a couple of things in that course. One was a reader's edition of Shakespeare's works that had uh, little notes off to the side and footnotes on the bottom that would kind of explain the text. Any of you that have tried to read Shakespeare or John Milton or something from that sort of medieval, uh, almost Renaissance era know how kind of difficult that archaic language can be. Shakespeare often invented words that had no meaning prior to his invention of them, and sometimes he would use words with a strange or odd meaning, and he would phrase things uh, in in often difficult ways to understand. So my reader's edition of Shakespeare was really helpful, but do you know what was more helpful than that? Cliff's Notes. Many of you, I can tell by your laughter, have used these as well. Uh, There was often a play that we would have to read from Shakespeare for this class, like King Lear or something. And it's a great play, but if you don't live 400 years ago, it's really hard to understand the language sometimes. And so there were were times where try as hard as I could, with all the help that that reader's edition with all of its footnotes and explanations was, I had to go to Barnes & Noble and pick me up a copy of a Cliff's Notes summary of that work. Those short summaries that put into plain language, that, that recap the whole story of that particular play or whatever, were just so helpful for me as a reader to, to be able to understand what I had already read. We are often helped by summaries like these, and even so in the context of Scripture. So when we come to chapter 9, verses 11 through 22 of Hebrews today, what we have before us is a sort of summary of much of what the author of Hebrews has been saying about Jesus up to this point, about the supremacy of his sacrifice, about the supremacy of the covenant that he inaugurates, and he is sort of recapping and, and, and bringing all of that back up to, to just remind and to summarize for us where we have already been. So as we look through this summary, we will find the author of Hebrews reviewing again the fact that Christ's perfect sacrifice is more than sufficient to cleanse the conscience of the believer and to secure total forgiveness to sins, uh, forgiveness of sins, excuse me. And, and here's the main idea that, uh, and, and the, the place to which we are going today. I want us to remember this and to be able to say with confidence this together today, that praise be to Christ who paid all that we owe. Jesus, the greater sacrifice, the inaugurator of a greater covenant, is worthy of our worship as the one who paid all that we owe. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word, Hebrews 9, 11 through 22. The author of Hebrews continues, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. You may be. As we were working through that, if you've been with us in our study of Hebrews the last uh, several weeks or so, you probably saw that summary playing out, the author of Hebrews summarizing where we have been. So let's look first at verses 11 through 14 as the author of Hebrews reviews for us the supremacy of Christ's sacrifice. Verses 11 and 12 return again to the ongoing comparison between the death of Christ and his ministry to the death of animals in the sacrificial ministry of the priests in the temple. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, the end of the verses that we looked at last week, which say, according to this arrangement, the arrangement of the law, the sacrifices in the temple, uh, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. These verses highlight for us, as we saw last week, the inability of the old covenant sacrifices to do anything to perfect the conscience, to clean the conscience of the worshiper, to remove any of the guilt or the weight of sin that still remain. There would always be things between people and God, even though animals were dying for their sins. These sacrifices were only effective for ritual cleansing, the ability to worship there in the temple. Verse 11 has one of my favorite words in all of Scripture. It begins with the word but. That word but always sets a contrast to whatever comes before it. The but of verse 11 is contrasting the ineffectiveness of the animal sacrifices in the temple with the ultimate efficacy, the ultimate effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. In this way, dying on the cross, Jesus appeared, as the author of Hebrews says, as a high priest of the good things that have come. The good things that have come are the good things, the blessings that come with the new covenant promised by God to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, which the author of Hebrews reviewed for us in Hebrews chapter 8. You remember the benefits of that new covenant, that God would write his law upon the hearts of his people, that his people would be his people and he would be their God, that all of his people would know him and we would not have to point each other to know God experientially, but we would all know him as his spirit comes to live within us and perhaps the greatest of the blessings of the new covenant that God would be merciful toward our iniquities and he would remember our sins no more. Jesus comes as a high priest of that covenant and of all the good things that come from it. By his own sinless death, 
There on the cross, the author of Hebrews tells us that, that he entered into the holy places. Not the holy places in the temple in Jerusalem, but the holy place that is, the, that, that is only symbolized by the temple. He entered in the very presence of God and offered himself, gave his own life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And since Jesus was sinless, he had no need to offer the blood of goats or bulls, calves, in order to enter into the presence of God. Instead, because he himself is sinless and divine, he offers his own death, his own blood, as a means of entering into God's presence on our behalf. Jesus' sacrifice is better, better than the death of goats or bulls, because he is offering himself, because he's offering a, a better death on behalf of others. Verses 13 and 14 remind us of how deep the effects of Christ's death go. The author says that the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of uh, people with the ashes of a heifer can sanctify the outside. If they're good enough for ritual cleansing for worship in the temple, how much more can the blood of Jesus, the divine Son of God, clean not just the outside but the inside too? How much more can the blood of Jesus cleanse the conscience of the one who is desiring to draw near to God? Animal sacrifices were sufficient for ritual cleansing, for outside cleansing, cleansing of the flesh, as a, 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 a cleansing of the body as sort of a, an, an appeal to God for, uh, for, for entering His presence. The law of ritual cleansing, which is so much of what we find in Leviticus in particular. Um, I know that all of you are, are really excited for me to hurry up and finish so you can get home to read Leviticus. But as you read Leviticus, you'll see all of these laws for ritual cleansing, for washing, and for things to make a person clean when they have come into contact with something, uh, when they've come in contact with something sinful or the results of sin or touched a dead body or whatever the case may be. Whenever somebody makes themselves ritually or becomes ritually unclean, it doesn't mean that they're unacceptable to God. It just means that uh, they've come in contact with something sinful or with the results of sin, like death in the world. They need to cleanse themselves before they enter back into worship with God. If all of these, there, there are all these laws about ritual cleansing, and sometimes we can read those in Leviticus and wonder, why does God care so much about how people clean the outside of their body? One Bible teacher has said, uh, she came to, to this realization that if God cares this much about outward cleanliness, how much more must he care about inward cleanliness? If God cares this much about ritual sanctification, how much more must he care about internal heart, soul sanctification? Christ's death on the cross is sufficient, not just to clean the outside, but to cleanse the inside as well to cleanse the heart, to cleanse the conscience. His death, his sacrifice is a supreme, it is a better sacrifice. And in his death, he inaugurates, he brings about a whole new covenant as we know is the case. And so in verses 15 through 22, the author of Hebrews reviews for us the supremacy of the new covenant that Christ brings. Verse 15 says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You know that every time you see the word therefore, you need to ask the question, what is the therefore? Therefore, 
That word, therefore, to use it one more time, leads us back to all of the implications of Christ's better sacrifice. Because Christ died, because he gives his life as a better sacrifice, there are implications for that. It means something. And what it means is that Jesus, because he's offered himself as a better sacrifice uh, for sins, is thereby a, he's been made a mediator. He's been made a priest. We already know this to be true. This is a summary. He's a priest of the new covenant that was referred to in chapter 8. And in this way, all who are called by God and answer the call to faith in Christ are recipients through Jesus of the new covenant, to have the law of God written upon their hearts, to know God, to be his people, to have their, their, their sins completely forgiven, completely taken away, remembered by God no more. Verses 16 and 17 are interesting, and they come to us kind of strange. If we just finish you know, verse 15... The end of it, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Then verse 16 begins, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. And that's kind of a jarring transition. Wait a minute, author of Hebrews, I thought we were talking about a covenant, but now you're talking about a will. What, what's going on here? That's kind of a, it's a, hard, that's a hard shift to make. Well, you might find it interesting to know that in the Greek New Testament, in the original language in which Hebrews was written, the word covenant and the word will are actually the same word in Greek. They both come from the word diatheke, which can mean, depending on its context, covenant, testament, or will. Will and testament are kind of the same. You think of it as a living will or last will and testament. It's what you want to happen. Uh, it is your wishes for your belongings uh, and their disbursement after your death. So that word diatheke in the, Greek, uh, in the Greek language can be used to speak about a covenant, a promise-based relationship, or to speak about the, uh, a will or a testament, a, a desire for one's belongings upon their death. Now, up to this point, the author of Hebrews has been using that word diatheke to mean covenant, which is why we've been talking about new covenant stuff for so many verses, so many chapters now. But here at verse 16, he makes a little pivot. He makes a little play on words. He uses that same word to mean something slightly a little bit different. He now means it, uh, uses it to speak of a will or to speak of a last will and testament. And he teaches us or reminds us again that a will, that somebody's will does not actually go into effect until they die. Now, you can write a will to uh, take care of the disbursement of your belongings, your possessions upon your death, uh, but those people that are mentioned in your will and the things that you intend to give to them upon your death don't actually take effect until you die, right? And there has to be somebody, there's usually an executor of your will who comes along to make sure that you are in fact dead, and the people that, uh, the people that uh, are to receive your belongings uh, are the people that they claim to be. But until the person dies, that will doesn't actually take effect. The author of Hebrews reminds us of this. The point here is that because Christ has died, the blessings of the covenant that God has promised in him are now able to be dispersed, able to be dispensed to all that they were intended for. The new covenant promise of Jeremiah 31 is like a a will. It's like a testament that God is giving to his people upon the death of his son in the place of sinners. And so once Jesus dies, that new co- the new covenant blessings are now dispersed to all that they belong to. Verses 18 and 21 continue. That in this manner of Christ's death, the covenant of the law, uh, uh, 
uh, excuse me, the, uh, in the same manner, the manner of a death, uh, the covenant of the law was inaugurated with the death of several animals there back in Exodus to serve as the affecting party of that, of that covenant. Animals died as God gave the covenant of the law. And the covenant blessings and the covenant curses that came along with either their, the covenant being obeyed or being disobeyed by the people were all attested by the death of these animals in the place of the people. Exodus 24 describes that covenant ceremony where Moses took the blood of animals and sprinkled the book of the law and sprinkled the people uh, as they themselves sort of walked through the blood of the covenant, so to speak, to make themselves responsible for obedience to it. But with Jesus, only one walks through that, the blood of that covenant. With Jesus, only one offers himself on behalf of other people. And so in light of the new covenant, our response, uh, uh, our part in the new covenant is not to, uh, not to promise that we will be obedient to God on threat of our own death, but rather we come simply with a pledge of faith to Christ as recipients of those blessings. Verse 22 notes for us that under the law, everything is purified by the death of a sacrifice, by a substitute for the sinner, including people who are being purified by, from sins. We see all through Scripture this constant connection between sin and death, don't we? It was there in the Garden of Eden. God said, as he gave that command to Adam and Eve, do not eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. On the day that you eat of it, on the day that you disobey my command, you shall surely die. The connection between sin and death, between disobedience to God and, and death is revisited in the covenant curses to the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy chapters like uh, 28 through 34 or so. You can read all of the curses that God says will come upon his people if they disobey the covenant of the law. The connection between sin and death is on display all over in the Old Testament. It's affirmed in the New Testament. Paul says so plainly in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. The sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, animals dying in the place of sinful people in Israel, made this reality of the connection between and death viscerally tangible and visible. The results of sin were always on display for the people of Israel, as they saw animals dying in their place for the sins that they had committed. And yet the old covenant system for atoning for sins was intentionally limited. We talked about a couple of weeks ago how God gave the Old Testament, uh, the old covenant with sort of a planned obsolescence. He always meant for it to give way to something better. The lesser part of creation in the Old Testament, animals, always had to die for a greater part of creation, human beings. And because their life is fundamentally different than human life, because animals are not made in the image of God the way that human beings are, there is no animal sacrifice that can actually make up for the, the, the results of sin that we have uh, between us and God. But in order, and in order to demonstrate the infinitely deadly effects of sin, but the infinite, and the infinite distance between that, that sin's placed between the sinner and God, we have this constant, uh, regular, year-by-year year, sacrificing of animals in the place of people under the Old Covenant. Now, were there a sacrifice whose life was more valuable than human life? Were there a sacrifice that were more valuable than the sinner? Were there a sacrifice that were perfectly sinless, not just made in the image of God, but were there a sacrifice that were God Himself? Perhaps, perhaps there could be an end to sacrifice of animals. Perhaps there could be a real cleansing of conscience. 
Perhaps there could be real freedom to approach God in confidence under the blood of that sacrifice. Dear friends, praise be to God that there is just such a sacrifice. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, not a lesser part of creation, but the one who created himself in human flesh, without sin, gives his sinless life on the cross for you and for me and for all who will come to him in faith. His is a better sacrifice. His is a better covenant that is inaugurated by his death. And the life that we live by faith in him, the resurrected Savior, is a supreme life to live compared to what we had before. Praise be to Christ who paid all that we owe, the author of Hebrews wants us to know today. So dear friends, what do we do in light of this truth? What do we do in light of this truth that Jesus paid all that we we owe? The only thing that I can think is worship. That's what we do. We worship God. We worship Christ who, who is the sacrifice we all desperately needed. You all are familiar with the phrase Stockholm Syndrome, right? August 23rd, 1973, Jan-Erik Olsen and Clark Olofsson took control of a bank in Stockholm, Sweden. They were armed, uh, were, uh, uh, came in under the auspices of robbing the place, but they had other things uh, in mind. Over the course of that robbery, they detained several hostages and locked them or, or kept them in the vault there in the bank to ensure that their demands would be met by the police and that they would have safe passage to freedom via helicopter and other things. Over the next 130 hours, a very strange thing happened. The hostages inside that bank came to look fondly upon their captors. Though the hostages were held in a cramped vault the entire time, they would later recall to reporters and therapists that one of the... uh, um, uh, the the robbers, one of the hostage takers, Jan-Erik Olsen, that Olsen had very kindly taken off his coat and draped it over the shoulders of a woman who was in the vault who was shivering because she was cold. They would recall how their captors would encourage them to keep trying to call their loved ones on the phone, even though the line wasn't being picked up. They remembered with fondness how one of the captors allowed one claustrophobic woman to walk around the bank outside of the vault, albeit on the end of a 30-foot leash made of rope tied around her waist. One hostage was even threatened to be shot in the leg as a demonstration to the police about the seriousness of, uh, of these criminals. And that hostage who was threatened to be shot in the leg, thought he, he remarked about how kind he thought his captor was, that he would only shoot him in the leg and not anything worse. Coming out of the, this, is, this is true. I'm not making this up. Coming out of the bank unharmed at the end of 130 hours... Several of the hostages were not able, except for with much therapy and help from others, to see their captors as anything but friends and kind-hearted people. A strange thing happened inside that bank where captives came to see their captors as friends, came to look upon them fondly, to, to even have some sort of affection for them and concern about their safety after being arrested. Dear friends, too many of us have a Stockholm Syndrome-like fondness for our sin. Too many of us have come to see our captor as a friend. 
Too many of us have come to see our own personal attempts to prove our goodness to God as a comfort to our souls somehow when God's word time and time again says, no, you are captive to this. This is the thing that has you in chains. You ought not love this thing. You ought to seek to be free from it. See in this text today, Hebrews 9, 11 to 22, that all, see all that Jesus has done for you. We've been looking at it for the last several weeks. But see it again, all that Christ has done for you on the cross. The stain of sin and the debt that you owed to God for your rebellion against Him in Christ are washed away and canceled. You have been made new in heart to serve the living God. Your life has been given a divine and blessed purpose to know and love and serve your Creator the way you were designed to be. Dear friend, you are in Christ free. You are in Christ alive. So praise God for the shackles of sin that no longer adorn your ankles and your wrists and stop trying to put them back on. Christ's death is a better death. His priesthood is a better priesthood. The blessings of the covenant that he inaugurates far surpass any blessing that you or I could ever imagine or come up with on our own. Praise be to Christ who paid all we owe. Praise be to Christ who freed us from sin. Praise be to Christ who raised us from the dead. Precious friend, you may be here this morning and not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus. Not one who has had your conscience cleansed by the death and resurrection of Christ by faith in Him. Nevertheless, you know that you are such a captive. Captive to the guilt of past misdeeds. Captive to assumptions about your unattractiveness to God. Captive to wrong conclusions about whether you can really be forgiven. Our text today is calling to you with the assurance of God himself to say, there is a death, there is a sacrifice that really can pay, that really can cancel the debt of sin you owe to God. There is a priest who really can bring you into the presence of God with all the confidence that that he can muster on your behalf. There really is a one that can restore you to relationship to God irrespective of whatever you have done in your life. That one is Jesus. Precious friend, if you don't know him, if you don't know the freedom of, from, captivity, from the captivity of sin that Christ offers, you can today by trusting Christ who died for your sins, who rose again to prove his victory over sin and death and to bring you with confidence to God. Church of Jesus Christ at First Baptist West Albuquerque, the most effective response that I can encourage us to make today in light of all that we have been reflecting on together is to worship, is to lift our hearts in praise to God who has done this impossible thing for us. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we are going to close our service not with a benediction, but with song, lifting our voices to Christ who paid all that we owe. Christian, it is good to sing summaries of this good news to one another. It is good for us to sing summaries of the gospel that cause us to reflect with awe upon all that God has done for us in Christ. And so we are going to feed our souls by reminding ourselves of the goodness of the gospel this morning. And friend, during this time of worship, you may need to 
speak with someone about your faith or your need to have faith, to trust Jesus. You may need to speak with someone about a decision to trust Christ as Lord today, to have your conscience cleansed, to serve God the rest of your days. And so as we sing, I'm going to make my way, uh, kind of a back way, but out to the front, just outside the, the front doors. And I would be more than happy to meet with you, to counsel with you as the church sings in worship of God and prays to him for all that Christ has done. I would love nothing more during that time than to help you to come into a worship-filled relationship with God through faith in Jesus. So don't delay. Worship Christ. Praise be to him who has paid all that we owe.